Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast, powered by Kasoon Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Johnny Sherman. Johnny is a professional support lawyer at Signature Litigation, with expertise in all aspects of dispute resolution. Johnny was co-editor of the Chambers and Partners UK Litigation Global Practice Guide 2019, and recently co-authored the featured article on the disclosure pilot scheme for PLC Magazine's 30th anniversary edition. Johnny has featured in numerous publications such as the FT Advisor, Dow Jones Financial News, Compliance Monitor, and many more. So a very big welcome, Johnny. Thanks very much, Robert. Thanks for having me on. It makes me uh, sound like I do a lot of writing, so I'm grateful. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, you made me have a bit of a mouthful on the introduction, so uh, you definitely keep very busy. And as you'll know, I believe you're a fan of the show, which is great. Uh, Before we go through all of your amazing achievements and your experiences to date, we must start with our customary opening question, which is about suits. So on the scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the TV series Suits? I've been ready for this question for quite a while now, Robert. And, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I am a fan of the show. And actually, just before I answer the, the icebreaker, I, let me just say, I think you guys are doing a great job in, in terms of championing the legal industry. And, you know, I think this podcast is, is going from strength to strength. So it's really great to be on here. In terms of Suits, I think I've got to go with, I think, with the majority here in terms of about four. I have been a fan of Suits. And I think there is an element of truth in, in what they do. I know a lot of people say there isn't, but you know, a lot of law does actually happen late at night, not necessarily with a whiskey in hand. But also what I would say is got a cracking soundtrack. I mean, I give that 10 out of 10. You know, the music on the on the show is, is absolutely brilliant. So there we go. I think in terms of legal reality, it's a four, but in terms of the music, it's a 10. Yeah, and I think you put that fantastically well. I'm also a big fan of the music. I had that on one of the quiz questions, really. You know, when we went through the whole Zoom quizzing phase. And they had a section on sort of theme tunes. And I obviously, as soon as I heard that, I was like, at least I'm going to get one of these questions right on the uh, TV series theme tunes. So we have to start at the beginning, Johnny. So tell us a bit about your sort of family background and, and upbringing. Sure. I'm the youngest of five children. So, you know, it was a bit of a, a competitive upbringing, but also just kind of you know, a very loving and supportive family, which I'm, I'm very lucky to have. And actually, for me, I grew up in the countryside, went to a kind of local comprehensive school and was always kind of fascinated by science and nature, being outside and being in the garden. And actually, that was always a very much a focus for me growing up. And actually, I didn't enter law through a law degree. You know, I, I went off and did a science degree in biology down at Plymouth University. And because that was actually very much my first interest and it still is really and I still absolutely love the sciences Um, but I did you know kind of transition into law slightly later in my life. Yeah and maybe tell us then a bit about your legal experiences sort of your, your training days and yeah tell us more about that. Sure. So I trained and qualified with a firm called Nabarro, which is actually now merged into the the huge kind of behemoth that it is in terms of CMS. And it was an absolutely fantastic kind of you know training experience and I was very fortunate for it. But when I came to doing the GDL and doing the DLPC, I actually didn't have any kind of experience in terms of training contracts. And I didn't even know what a training contract was, to be perfectly honest with you, Robert. And I was looking and I finished my biology degree at down at Plymouth and was looking at kind of you know, graduate entry jobs and you know, further training and master's degrees. And I actually quite genuinely, I was living down in Devon at that time and I was sat on my computer and I was looking on the Guardian website for jobs. 
And there was a little kind of banner on the side, which was from the College of Law, as it was back then, which says, you know, you can convert your degree to a law degree. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds great. I'll do that. And not really appreciating kind of everything that was involved in that in terms of, you know, funding, training contracts and so on. So when I then kind of you know, rocked up to the College of Law later on that year to, to do my conversion, quite quickly felt like I was a bit out of depth. And, and actually, one of the first things I did was to go to the careers center and kind of, you know, ask them for some help. And that's what I needed. And I did get a mentor back then, just kind of give me a bit of insight into what was required. Uh, but also I actually had an upfront conversation with the careers uh, center kind of uh, advisor. And they were kind of talking to me and, you know, I've got a half decent degree in biology and they're saying, you know, what kind of law firms do you want to kind of apply to? And I kind of knew enough to say that, you know, well, you know, maybe not the magic circle, you know, maybe maybe somewhere a bit below that. And quite genuinely, I was kind of saying, you know, I'd, I'd, at that point, I'd be interested in taking, you know, environmental law. It just so happened that the careers advisor kind of knew that Navarro had a bit of an environmental team. And so she said, you know, what about Navarro? And I've got to be honest with you, I just went, yes, I will get a training contract with them then, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really think about it in any other way, apart from that, you know, that sounded sensible to me. And again, you know, I don't necessarily recommend this, but I was very focused on getting a training contract you know, with them. And I did very few training contract applications, but I made sure that the one that I did for Navarro was pretty much the best thing that I've ever done in my life. And thankfully, I was successful in getting that. And I went for the um, vacation scheme and thankfully, you know, obtained the training contract, you know, through that. And actually, Nabarro was a great place to, to train. One of the things that I also was attracted to was the fact that they had a training contract which wasn't for six-month seats, which is quite typical in law firms. It was actually six, four-month seats. So you got to see more of the firm. And that was actually really important to me because, yes, I kind of came in with this slight environmental side to me. But you know, I really didn't know at that point what area of law that I wanted to go into. And so I was very much kind of, you know, an open book and, and ready to learn, really. And it just so happened that actually I ended up kind of you know, going into the litigation department. And I have to be honest with you, that was the last thing which I thought I was going to go into in terms of um, a legal practice. But actually, I absolutely loved it. And during my training, I was working both in the commercial litigation department, but and also back then they were doing an element of clinical negligence work. They were on a panel for one of the large medical defense unions. And so we used to get a lot of work through that. And so that was defending doctors, either through clinical negligence or through regulatory complaints that they may have been brought against them. Yeah, that was a really, really kind of, you know, steep learning curve for me. I think when, when anybody that's in that line of work, you know, knows that actually your caseload is, is very large, is quite demanding. And, you know, I actually really kind of, you know, learned to love litigation and dispute resolution. And for me, I think it does also come down to the fact that I think in many other practices of law, you know what the law is and you're working around it. But in litigation, new law can pop up at any point in time. You know, when you get a new judgment coming out from the High Court, from the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court, you need to pay attention to that because that may well impact your case. And for me, that's really exciting and something which I love about this area of law. Good stuff. And so you talk very fondly then of your training and then sort of getting into commercial litigation. And then obviously you then make a move. And so do you want to sort of tell us a bit about that decision making process and then your next legal role? And then we can perhaps talk as and an interesting fact for you, Johnny, your first PSL to come on to Legal Speaking Podcast. We're going to be drilling down into that a lot more shortly. But yeah, tell, tell our listeners a bit more before that as well. Sure. 
I'm keen to talk about the role because I think it's a really exciting uh, role as well. And I did kind of you know, move away from Nabarro and actually it was a recognition of wanting to move more into the kind of commercial space. I found that the clinical negligence work had been absolutely fantastic in terms of experience, but I was doing then about 50-50 in terms of straight commercial litigation um, and clinical negligence work. And so I needed to kind of, you know, move on to kind of, you know, actually kind of broaden my experience. And at that point in time, signature litigation had been set up and it had been founded in 2012. And so I joined Signature Litigation in 2014. So still when it was very, very new, very, very novel and very, very young. At that point, there was only a handful of us in a small office space just off Fleet Street, although we're still near that area. You know, I just thought that was a really exciting thing to be a part of a new specialist law firm that had just kind of you know, set up. And, you know, for me, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as an entrepreneur, you know, th- you know through and through. But I do think I've got an entrepreneurial spirit. And for me, it was very much kind of, you know, aligned with Signature and what they're trying to achieve in this space. And perhaps I can just quickly say a bit more about Signature, because for me, what really resonates is I describe it as kind of you know, the three pillars of Signature. And they go to kind of, you know, the service that we provide our clients, but also our culture as a firm. And the first pillar is we operate in a conflict-free space. And that's not new or novel necessarily. There are other firms that do that. And that largely came out of the 2008 financial crisis um, when there was a lot of litigation going on in terms of work against banks. And you know, partners found themselves conflicted because their banking teams or so on were on a bank's panel and therefore they couldn't come along and, and bring a claim against them. So, you know, a number of companies, specialists and boutique law firms were kind of set up, you know, from that who were operating on this conflict-free platform. But actually that that does mean, you know, a couple of things. I think it means that we get some really interesting work. It's actually never happened in terms of what I've seen in terms of an actual genuine conflict, you know, has arisen. We, we may not act on something kind of, you know, kind of strategically or so on. That means that, you know, we can pretty much turn our kind of, you know, focus on, on any matter. The next pillar that I kind of always talk about is actually how we operate in terms of the time that our kind of fee earners are actually kind of you know dedicating to their work. And this kind of spins out from you know our founding partner who comes from a very large kind of you know international multi-practice law firm. And actually he was finding that he was spending, you know, perhaps 60% of his time on steering committees, management time, and very little on what he really wanted to do, which was to provide legal advice to his clients and his clients, which he had grown to have a very good and strong commercial relationship with. But actually, he was being pulled in all these other directions. So the focus at Signature, and we're, we're very management-like, and we essentially have a symbiotic relationship and outsource our, our kind of management function. And what does that mean? Is It means that actually, you know, the lawyers are there to do law. And that's not to say that they don't kind of have extracurricular activities and, and other focuses, but it means that actually when the client picks up the phone, they, they know they're going to speak to their lawyer. And I think that's a, a really important point to happen. And, you know, for clients, that's what they want. They don't want to kind of you know, be passed around and saying your lawyer's in a, in a management meeting. And then the final pillar, and I think this is really fundamental for me in terms of why you know, I was really attracted to, to signature litigation was that we essentially operate on a kind of cooperative basis. And what do I mean by that? When signature was first set up, the founding partners went with this idea to the SRA to say, you know, we'd like to set up a law firm, which is essentially a cooperative, like your John Lewis model or your co-op, where each of the kind of members of the firm benefit from the profits and are invested in it. Now, the SRA didn't quite understand this. And so if you actually look at us in terms of, you know, from the SRA's point of view, 
you know, we're set up as a traditional LLP law firm with partners and equity partners and so on. But essentially what we built out underneath that is this co-op. So that means that, you know, we don't just have kind of have, you know, traditionally, as you're probably aware, partners taking the, the vast majority of profits in terms of, you know, the, the work that's done within the law firm. Those profits are actually shared amongst everyone. And when I say everyone, I mean, you know, whether it's me as a PSL or associate team or even our PAs. And actually, if you were coming into our office, I'd say this to you then, actually, the people that you see at the front of house, they're all invested in this cooperative. And for me, it just generates such a good culture in terms of being invested in the firm, invested in how we do and the service that we provide. And anyway, I think that's a really, really strong point for us. And I'm very proud to kind of talk about it, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I think it's very unique, as you say. And I think it just encourages that whole collegiate culture. And yeah, I guess everyone is kind of moving towards the same goal, which is great. And just to sort of build on that, then you obviously had great fee earning days, and you did to decide then sort of become a PSL. So for those that perhaps new to PSL, do you want to explain what it is and perhaps how that role differs from, say, an associate or or a partner role? Sure. So PSL, otherwise known as a professional sport lawyer, and if I'm honest with you, there's now a number of other names that this this role kind of gets referred to as. So it might be knowledge lawyer or knowledge development lawyer or practice development lawyer. But essentially, it's a non-fearning role. So I'm not strictly working directly with our clients and on client matters. However, what I am providing is support to the rest of the team. And actually, my analogy to kind of explain that is the way I see it is that I'm very similar to what, say, a sports coach or even, you know, even a football manager is doing. And so that's kind of you know, sitting back and kind of taking on all the information and kind of saying, actually, you need to be focused on, say, this recent judgment because that's going to help you on your case, or there's some new technology that we might want to use within the firm because I think that's going to help us and improve our client service. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, I think that's a good way of describing it because it's kind of saying you've got to be kind of, you know, across everything. It certainly gives me a lot more time because I think it's right that, you know, fee earners are those elite athletes, as it were. You know, they are the ones who are kind of laser focused on the work that they need to do. Again, it goes back to that point, but spending time with our clients and, and, and making sure that they get the advice that they want. But as I say, I think it, you know, the, the professional support role is perhaps one step removed. But as I say, it's quite a good way of describing it is this kind of head coach way of thinking about it. Because I think that it's about kind of you know, picking up, I don't mean this literally, but I'm looking at kind of you know, what nutrition and what tech we might want or scouting out you know, what's the opposition doing, what do we need to pay attention to. So I think that's a good way of kind of describing the role. Yeah, I think you've analysed that really, really well. And then I guess to encourage people to maybe consider a PSL role as an alternative to partnership, what would you say to those maybe who haven't been quite new to a PSL role, considering it as an alternative partnership? What I'd say is that I think more generally, I think it's really important to kind of you know consider all the options to you. I think it's very easy to get focused or get stuck on this trajectory to partnership. And that's completely fine if that's genuinely what you want to do. But I think one of the things I recognized within myself was that I was involved in a race, which actually I didn't want to win. You know, I didn't want to kind of, you know, win the race and become a partner. And so I think it's really important for you to kind of, you know, to step back and to kind of have a look and say, what race do I want to run? And ultimately, you know, where do I want to take my career? I think, you know, PSL or, or knowledge lawyer is something which is going to be increasingly important. You know, law has changed over the past 10, 20, 30 years. We're not in a time where a letter would take two to three weeks and it would go out. We're talking much more demanding. 
And frankly, it's just not possible, I think, for any one individual to be on top of absolutely everything all at one time and also then you know, deliver the kind of service that clients are expecting these days. If you're kind of thinking, actually, where does my skill set sit? And for me, you know, I do think of myself as being much more academic. When I was fearing, I always had a big stack of papers next to me of things I wanted to read, um, whether that's judgments or articles. And I just never got around to doing it. And that was partly because I was focused on free earning work. But now, you know, I'm afforded that luxury, as it were, to be able to read those articles and journals and indeed, you know, contribute to those articles and journals myself. And I think that's an important point to be considering. Where do you want to kind of, you know, see yourself in that next kind of, you know, five, 10 years time? And I think, you know, that transition, I think, can be through PSL is actually on law firm management. And I think that's something which, you know, I, I certainly see myself kind of going into, but it's not necessarily a, a traditional partnership role, but it is a role in terms of, you know, actually looking at how a law firm manages itself and what marginal gains can we get. It goes back to another sports analogy that in terms of, you probably aware, Robert, in terms of marginal gains in British cycling that was achieved in 2012 London Olympics. But for me, that's, you know, again, some really interesting concepts, but I wanted to kind of have the time to explore those different angles and the different aspects that I could kind of bring to law. And I think that's why it's important to kind of you know, keep open when you're going through your legal career and understand what your skill set is. If actually you're feeling that your skill set is being drawn to something else, then you should definitely investigate that and, and look at it more. Yeah, good stuff. And you mentioned earlier around sort of the entrepreneurial flair. I wanted to talk a bit more about, because you are a founder and director of JD Legal. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So JD Legal is a company which I set up a a year ago, which is my own company. And actually, it provides some consultancy services to the legal industry and actually with a focus on the e-discovery industry. It's really around content and content generation. And actually, it is something which I'm really kind of passionate about. And you and I have engaged a lot across LinkedIn. And I think that's a really important platform for all businesses to be using, not just lawyers. LinkedIn as a platform has changed dramatically over the last two or even one year. And it's a fantastic place for content. And so actually, you know, JD Legal was something which I kind of set up as a bit of a side project. And again, I actually think it's a really valuable skills that you need to learn when you're setting up your own company, which again, I think often we miss when we're just going through law school and legal training. We set up a lot of companies for other people or doing corporate deals for other companies. But there's a real insight that you gain when you're setting up your own company, when you're having to do your own invoicing, when you're having to chase for your own invoices. And that's a skill set which I wanted to gain. And I recognized that you know, I wasn't necessarily at a point in time where I could just jump into that in terms of a big international law firm. But I knew actually that I could generate something which was uh, beneficial in terms of content and content marketing. It's been really good. I, I have a very kind of you know, small client base on that. Um, and it's something which I just kind of you know, keep ticking over. I find it hugely beneficial to me. And I think it will be hugely beneficial kind of going forward in terms of adding those skills to my quiver, because I think they're really valuable ones, whether you're a lawyer or just operating in, in the commercial uh, sphere to have. And I think you get a lot more insight. Uh, you probably agree with me, Robert, as an owner of your own business. It's very different from just being an employee. And I think I wanted to understand that, and which is why I kind of did that as a bit of a side hustle, a bit of a side project. Uh, but thankfully, it's, it's going very well. I'm really pleased to hear that and completely echo what you're saying, because it is a slightly different ballgame having your own business. And, and, and again, I guess the beauty of uh, you know, the whole networking thing, great that you and I first connected via LinkedIn. I think we both agree it's such a, a sort of valuable platform. And I know you've got a keen interest in the algorithm. 
And so I guess as we look to try and wrap up, what advice would you give to lawyers who perhaps want to use LinkedIn more but don't really know where to start? What tips would you give? I actually think one of the best things that you can do is actually start to look at what other people are putting out in terms of content. And I actually think this doesn't necessarily just apply to LinkedIn, but it applies more generally. And I think especially for young lawyers and aspiring lawyers, I think it's really important just to kind of observe what others are doing. It's something which I have always done. I've kind of always looked at those people that are perhaps, you know, five, 10 years ahead of me in terms of their career and kind of gone, what, what are they doing? You know, what are they talking about? And you're obviously now posting about. I think it's really you know, important just to kind of gain that exposure because then what you can then start to do is dip into that. And you can, frankly, just kind of, you know, copy it a bit and kind of see what they did and see what, you know, what you can add to it. And I think that is an important point. You do need to kind of add your own spin to it. You shouldn't worry about putting yourself out there. I mean, it is a big thing for people in terms of, you know, are they going to get the likes? And frankly, you'll know just as well. You'll put out a post and you think it's the best post that, you know, anyone's ever written. And just because of the timing that you did it, it doesn't go anywhere. And you just have to chalk that down and you just go, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do another post tomorrow. I'm going to do another post in the next couple of days. And you will see where we get with that one. And I think you've got to be prepared to have a bit of fun with it. And yes, it is a professional uh, platform, but I do think that people are, are much more ready to understand you as a person rather than just necessarily a corporate entity. So I think that's where you can have a bit of fun with it as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because sometimes it can get quite heavy the working world. So I think it definitely is a great, fabulous, fantastic sort of professional networking site. And I think some of the content that you've been producing recently, Johnny, I've really enjoyed. So I definitely encourage our listeners to to follow on you on that. And uh, I guess as we wrap up, I'd just like to say a really big thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure learning more about you, your journey, your entrepreneurial flair. So on behalf of all of us from the Legally Speaking podcast team, we, we wish you lots of continued success with your legal career and entrepreneurial suits and from us over and out. Thanks so much for having me on.